Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, I'm pleased to have Dr. April Perry, who is program core, I'm sorry, program director and associate professor at Western Carolina University as our guest. April, thanks so much for joining the podcast and congratulations on your recent tenure and promotion. Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. All right. So we'll talk about your work and and all of that. But before we go there, would you tell um, the listeners today a little bit about who you are outside of work? It can be hobbies, things you're reading, watching, listening to, whatever you'd like to share. Yes. Um, Michelle, I'm so glad that you've asked this question because sometimes we only define ourselves based on our work. Um, And I think that it's really important that as a field in general, we are people with lives and loved ones outside of work. So although most of today's conversation is about work, um, I'm really glad that you you asked that question. Um, So I've got a lot of hobbies, um, but I spend most of my time with the three humans that I share a house with. Um, My partner, Dr. Lane Perry, and my two kiddos, Prescott and Penny Lane. Um, I love being a mom and I identify as a a mommy scholar and um, it's a huge part of of who I am. And so therefore I spend a ton of time with my little kiddos. Um, So I'm not only trying to make a difference in the lives of the students that I have in my classroom, but, you know, trying to raise and love humans um, that are going to go on to be great people, I hope. Um, kind of other than hanging out with my kiddos and being a soccer mom and a dance mom and all those things, I, um, I started running in COVID. I've never been a runner, but when the world shut down, I needed to get outside and I just started running. So I've spent about the last year and a half just committing to running five days a week. I'm not very good at it, but I really like it. Um, and I just really love anything outside. We live in the mountains of North Carolina. So we spend a ton of time camping and out at lakes and stand up paddle boarding and, um, outdoor concerts now that that's kind of starting to, to rehappen and, um, just really anything, anything outside. Um, I really enjoy the brewery scene of Western North Carolina and Asheville and, um, have, have learned to love beer. And before moving here, I was never a beer drinker, but you can't live near Asheville and not be a beer drinker. So it took me a while, but, um, yeah, I, I love, um, yeah, being outdoors, spending time with my family and friends. Um, I always say that I'm a collector of humans. I don't collect knickknacks or antiques or anything like that, but I, I collect people and humans. And so, um, my friendship circle, um, outside of the university is really important to me too. So um, I yeah, spend a lot of time with family and friends in the outdoors. Beautiful. Um, okay, so thanks for letting us know, I won't say the real you, but part of the real you. Yeah. So another part that we'd love to hear more about is, so you're in this student affairs, higher ed kind of thing. How did that happen for you? You know, it's funny, like most student affairs folks, we didn't plan on being in this field. It just kind of happened. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma and I attended um, the University of Central Oklahoma as an undergraduate. And I was a really involved student. Um, I did student government and sorority and orientation and you name it. I was probably volunteering or any type of student leadership. Um, That's really where I found my home and my identity as an undergraduate. Um, but I got a degree in broadcasting and I thought I wanted to be a news broadcaster and specifically an entertainment news broadcaster. Um, so even though I was really involved in campus, um, I was always focused on, okay, what, what am I going to do after college? And that was broadcasting. Um, so after I graduated college, I moved out to Los Angeles and I worked for the TV show entertainment tonight. I also worked for Disney headquarters. Um, and I was like, this is, this is what I'm going to do. This is my life. And then I had what I call a quarter life crisis where suddenly you wake up and you're like, what am I doing? I feel like I'm paying a gookus of rent living in Los Angeles. And, you know, what, what do I actually really want to do with my life? Um, I've always been focused on being a broadcast news person. And I don't think that that's what I want to do. And, you know, just questioning everything, which I probably should have done while I was in college, but, you know, something about like being in the quote real world after college um, really kind of brought that to a head. 
Um, so I returned for the holiday break um, from Los Angeles to visit my hometown. And I went back to my undergraduate college and I met with our vice president of student affairs. Her name is Dr. Catherine Gage and um, said, I'm having a quarter life crisis. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I feel like I'm a starting starving artist living in LA. Um, and she was like, April, you loved college. You were a student leader. You did all these things. How about a career in higher ed? And here I was, I don't know, seven months after college graduation. And for the first time in my life, I thought, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a career doing all these things. Why did that, why did that light bulb never go off for me all those times previous? Um, so she really encouraged me to, to come back. And she actually about um, six months later offered me a job and, uh, in student affairs. And so I started doing public relations and marketing for the division of student affairs. That was my first job um, in higher ed. And I utilized the employee tuition benefits and I started a master's program that next fall um, in adult education, student development. And it, it just kind of went from there. You know, that's where I, I initially got my feet wet with student affairs, but it was funny that it took a, um, a disorientating dilemma before I thought, mm -hmm. oh, I actually do want to want a career in student affairs. Um, and that's so common, right? Like we, no one wakes up as a five-year-old, how my five-year-old says she wants to be a veterinarian and you know, no one, no one says that. Uh, I want to be a student affairs professional, you know, when they're a kid. Um, so that lived experience mixed with someone kind of taking a chance on me and saying, hey, you know, you loved this. You could find real, real passion and meaning here. Um, so I did that. I, I started working at the University of Central Oklahoma, which is my alma mater. And I went to grad school um, as a part-time student while I worked full-time, which is different than the program that I teach and now, you know, with the cohort model and full-time students. And um, it was, it's what worked for me at that time. And so I got really great work experience while I was in, in graduate school. Um, and then after grad school, I worked for about another year at, at UCO. And um, my, in that time, I, I got married to my partner who was also having a career in higher education and also got a master's degree in higher ed. Um, we were both working at the institution. Um, and we decided that we wanted to live and study abroad and we wanted to explore the world. And, um, you know, it's not always socially acceptable just to quit your job and go move across the planet and travel around with no purpose. And so we thought, hmm, education is a really good, socially acceptable reason to quit your job, sell all your belongings, move across the world. So we started applying for doctoral programs. Um, and our number one kind of eye on the prize was going to New Zealand. Um, neither of us had ever been there, but we, you know, had seen the movies and heard all the stories and thought, man, we would love to live in a magical place like New Zealand. And so started to apply for doc programs there. Um, my partner was immediately accepted at the University of Canterbury and um, which is in Christchurch, New Zealand on the South Island. Um, he received a whole lot of fellowships and scholarships and support because he is um, the more academic out of the two of us. And I thought, hey, okay, well, now that we've kind of nailed down a school, maybe, maybe I'll do this whole PhD thing too. And um, although I, I've loved at that point being a practitioner, I didn't really view myself as a scholar um, and didn't really have intentions of, you know, becoming a faculty member or doing research as part of my job. I just wanted to work with college students. Um, but when the door opened and we knew we were moving abroad, I was like, okay, I'm going to apply too. And I ended up applying to the University of Canterbury and um, got a, a doctoral, an international doctoral research fellowship, um, and which was a, a really great lucrative opportunity where basically they, they, spawn, they fully sponsor international students to come study in New Zealand. Um, so we lived in New Zealand for four years from 2008 to 2012 um, and got our PhDs, both of us. And, um, and then after that, we started thinking, okay, now is it time to move back to the US? Do we stay in New Zealand? And um, just trying to, to figure out our life path. And long story short, we ended up back in the US and um, specifically in North Carolina. And that's how we ended up at Western Carolina University, which is where we are now. And, um, and then I've just continued my, my higher education path as a professional here. Uh, for the last nine years, um, but that's a really long way of explaining how I how I went from you know the beginning days of broadcasting to to a career in higher ed now. Well, I, I love it because it represents 
everyone's, there are very few people whose stories are this sort of direct line. Um, and yours literally went all over the place. So that, that's great. Um, what, I, I just have to ask a follow-up about your, your first, your pre-student affairs career, pre-higher ed um, career. Are there things you bring to your work from working at Entertainment Tonight, working with Disney? Are there things that sort of inform how you show up in spaces or how you support students or whatever that might be? Yes, I would say definitely so. And it's more with my personal transferable skills. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you're familiar with Strengths Finders, um, but I'm a certified Strengths Finders coach and I really geek out for all string, all things Strengths Finders. Um, but my number one strength, according to Strengths Finders, is communication, which when I do trainings, I often describe to people, it's not communication, how we use it in, in the lay sense. It's more how Strengths Finders defines it is articulation and being able to articulate your thoughts, feelings, and emotions, um, particularly on the spot and with other people and verbally and written. Um, so what that natural skill set, whenever I learned that or developed that maybe as a child or a young person, um, and then utilized as a broadcaster, um, working in news, uh, I do every single day, you know, I stand up in front of a group of people and I talk and I, um, more than talk, I facilitate and I help others bring words, um, to maybe their thoughts and, and feelings and experiences. And, um, definitely that transferable skill set of, uh, you know, having a natural gift and then using it in lots of different ways. And I tell students all the time, you know, you, you have things that you're naturally gifted at doing and it just manifests itself in different ways. So um, some of my other strengths are, are strategic and, um, and focus and discipline and how I use that in my previous life and how I use that now are very similarly. It's just, it's a different audience. It's a different group. It's manifesting itself in a different way. I'm not writing news stories. I'm writing journal articles and I'm not, you know, presenting on TV, but I'm presenting in front of a classroom. Um, but it's a, it's a very overlapping uh, transferable skill set. Um, but then, yes, of course, the, the lived experiences of um, living in a different place like Los Angeles, especially for me, having grown up in Oklahoma um, and bringing those lived experiences into the classroom and those different perspectives um, and just that different pace of life that, mm. you know, that that I've that I've lived outside of higher ed um, definitely bring that into the classroom. I, I love that. And um, especially as, you know, second years are starting to think about job search and transitioning to new areas, having had your experiences, it's, um, you probably have a lot of insight on, okay, here are some things you might have to navigate. So that's great. Um, so you mentioned um, someone who kind of said, hey, you were the student leader, you know, this is a world where you could really make a, a continuing contribution. Um, are there other people or another person you would like to highlight as, you know, we talk about we're a small field. I just like to hear, you know, here are some people who were really powerful influences on my own experience, because chances are people listening to this are going to be like, ah, I know who that is. So who, who are some people for you? Yeah. Um, so that, that very first person, um, Dr. Catherine Gage, uh, who, who really just kind of said, you know, Hey, you should think about a career in, in all of this. Um, and that kind of helped that light bulb come on. Um, she really invested in me as an undergraduate as well. Um, the university president at the time university at the university of central Oklahoma, um, Dr. Roger Webb, he was a really student focused president. Um, and not a lot of undergraduates know their university presidents well. Um, and he really invested in me. Um, and then later when I came back to work at the institution, he actually, um, hired me as, as one of his staff members to, to run a leadership initiative, um, so he, he was very influential and in the functional areas that I got experience in, especially with student leadership. Um, <clears throat> and of course, my partner, my partner is the one who said, you know, hey, you should think about getting a PhD. And I'm like, no, I'm not smart enough to do that. Or you think you should think about becoming a faculty member. Oh, no, I don't have the skill set for that. And just always pushing me, um, you know, to, to really think beyond what I think I'm capable of. 
Um, and then the transition from being a practitioner as a practitioner for about nine years, um, from practitioner to faculty member, that was a really hard adjustment for me and something that I didn't really um, years ago envision becoming part of my path. And it's funny now because it's the only way I see the future. Um, but um, Pam Havis from Clemson um, took me on as a mentee when I first became um, a faculty member. And um, she's someone that has really helped me navigate, um, I would say mid-career, the transition from practitioner to faculty. Um, she, she's a mom of two girls. She has a partner in higher education. Um, so very similar kind of life situation. And it's, it's amazing how um, important and impactful it can be to, to see someone who has navigated life similarly to how you have and, and how much that helps you get through it. So Pam has been a really great mentor, still is, um, in, in navigating my, my faculty career. I could do a million more shout outs because there are so many people, um, but those kind of are the, come to the forefront of my mind. That's great. Well, and I love that you talk about having a mentor at the mid-level because there's a lot of energy focused on entry level and new professionals, but we need that guidance throughout our careers. So that's awesome. Um, and nice to have a partner who gives you the nudge when you need it too, yeah. and speaks the language, right? So, um, well, okay. So let's talk about your experience as a faculty member. Um, what, what's your philosophy as a teacher um, in, your, in your faculty role? Yeah. So my motto in, in life, kind of even in and outside of the classroom is the only thing better than watching someone grow is helping them grow. Mm. Um, and I really let that guide my, my practice as a, as a student affairs professional and also as a, a professor. Um, but I've, I've let that motto dictate my teaching philosophy and, you know, how can I help other people grow? And depending on the course and the, the student level, you know, undergraduate versus master's, <clears throat> kind of where they are in their life, kind of it, it ebbs and flows with that. Um, but how can I help people grow and become better versions of themselves? Um, my teaching philosophy is really rooted excuse me, got a tickle in my throat. Um, my teaching philosophy is really rooted in preparing the next generation of citizenry um, and specifically in the role that I'm in, preparing the next generation of student affairs professionals. And so not only am I preparing them to be practitioners in the field and to change students' lives and have that ripple effect, you know, knowing that you're changing someone's life and then they're going to go on and change someone else's life. Um, but, but, preparing them for the workforce in general. Um, I know we'll get to this in a little bit, my, but my research is all about preparing college students for life after college. And in that vein, um, my specific teaching role within graduate students now is preparing them for life in student affairs. And so I've taken that to my classroom, to my pedagogy, is what, what are we doing in the classroom to better prepare you? Whether those practical, tangible skills on job searching and interviewing, or just transferable skills so that you know what to do whenever you find yourself in certain situations um, when you're in the field. So that's, that's my guiding philosophy on, on kind of how I approach classroom spaces. Um, I very much view myself as a facilitator more than, than a, a lecturer or a teacher. Um, I know that the students in my classrooms have incredibly uh, vast experiences, and I want to hear those, and I want to bring um, stories to light um, that are different than my own. So I, I very much try to view myself as a facilitator um, who's just guiding a conversation, but really letting the students um, kind of lead that space and helping the, the co-construction of meaning. Mm -hmm. Well, and you did perfectly sort of set up the next question, which is what is your research? And given some of what you shared earlier, I would love to hear um, how did you come to see yourself as a scholar? If that mm -hmm. wasn't kind of how you saw yourself initially, was there a moment when it's like, oh, this got published now, this is who I am, or was it more gradual? Um, and I guess along the same lines, how do you choose the projects that you're going to work on? Yeah, yeah, great questions. Um, so I'm a qualitative researcher, and many of us have heard the phrase or used the phrase, research is me-search. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I had, as I shared, that that quarter life crisis um, as a 23 year old living in Los Angeles, trying to redefine my my life and my career. And so when I came back and I was working my first job in in higher ed and and going to grad school, we had to pick a research topic and then do that for our thesis. And research is me search. So I said, you know, hey, are other people going through what I went through or am going through, you know, do other people manage to get through this whole system and still at the other end, either have a hard time really finding a job or, or just figuring out what they want to do. And are there interventions that institutions can do to help people basically better prepare for life after college? Um, so I did a, a, my master's thesis on that, but you know, a master's thesis was like a, a, a practice go. It was a good, good, good way to kind of get, get my head around the topic. Um, but by the end of it, I realized like, I think that I want this to be my thing. And I think that I really want to explore this. Um, and that's what I ended up doing my doctoral research on. Um, and to answer your second question, I think that for me, I finally started viewing myself as, as more of a scholar. At the end of my master's degree, um, I got some recognition for, for my thesis and my research. And I think for the first time I realized um, the, the definition of being a researcher or a scholar is so broad. And, you know, we're socialized to believe that it's a certain type of research. Um, and, you know, I wanted to hear people's stories and I wanted to um, better the higher education system and what, what services we offer for students. And I think that that didn't fit my previous, you know, misconception of what I thought research was or what I thought being a scholar was. Um, and so it was kind of through that and really identifying as a qualitative researcher that I realized like, oh, this, this, this is legit. This, I want to do this. I, I can be a scholar if this is what being a scholar um, is like. And so that's kind of when I, when I made that, that shift. Um, although my entire PhD process was basically imposter syndrome. So I don't want to <laughs> make it sound like I, I was firm in what I was doing at that point. Um, so I, I lived and moved abroad. So I, I was, you know, um, an expat in New Zealand. And so very much trying to navigate a different higher education system. Um, I'd had a lot of interest in international education. Um, I led, I have led over the years, many study abroad trips. And so being an international student was really great experience for me, but it also taught me, you know, um, just a, a, another layer of imposter syndrome and what it's like to, to navigate a space in a system that you don't feel like that you belong. Um, so I definitely had a lot of crash and burns um, through my PhD and a lot of moments where I thought, why am I doing this? Am I, am I strong enough? Do I have enough endurance? Do I, um, you know, do I really belong here? Um, and, and I think that, that really the, the people's stories and the type of research that I want to do where I'm illuminating lived experiences is really what, what kind of pulled me through and still does. Um, it's still the kind of research that I do. And that's what motivates me to be the kind of scholar that I am. I feel like that you asked one more question. Oh, end. how do you choose projects? Oh, gosh, that's hard. So, um, so kind of with the baseline, when I became a faculty member, uh, it was about a, a year or so, two years um, after I had completed my doctoral degree. So initially I thought, okay, I'm really just going to focus on, on this, which is what I call the post-university transition. What do we as institutions do to prepare students for life after college and, and in that, the post-university transition? And there are a lot of different elements, right? There's, there's career preparation, there's life skills, there's emotional preparation and just managing expectations for our college students that like you're not going to get a degree in life just be rainbows and gumdrops and you know and, and and really teaching them how to to navigate ambiguity um and how uncertain life is um i think oftentimes we sell the idea and I, we as higher education or society that um a degree specifically an undergraduate degree is like the golden ticket to life but once you have this doors open for you and um, absolutely yes, in the grand scheme of things it can do that. But for a lot of students, um, it's not just that. It's not just like, oh, I got a degree. Now I'm going to live happily ever after. Um, there's, you know, help, helping students navigate that space. There's so much that goes into it. 
So when I'm trying to decide projects, wow, I have like kind of moved from, from saying, okay, I'm going to do um, post-college or post-university transition research to say, okay, what, what can we do around student success? How do we help students be successful when they're in college? Um, and then and then I kind of developed, and you know, you, you're, we're, we're taught this language as faculty members, you know, what is your research umbrella? I went in with a research topic and that was my thing. And that's what I was an expert in. And I'm still very passionate about that, but now I have an umbrella, right? And lots of different kind of veins of research within that umbrella. Um, my first year as a faculty member, um, being a qualitative researcher, I wanted to understand my own experience from practitioner to faculty. So I did an autoethnographic study um, with two, two colleagues where we documented our first year transition from practitioner to faculty. So again, just trying to understand lived experiences, research is me search. Um, and so then I thought, okay, well, I, I study transition from undergraduate to, to life after college, but now I'm going through a different transition myself and studying that transition. And so that kind of opened up my umbrella of research to, okay, let's look at transitions. Let's look at college transitions, look at graduate student transitions, let's look at faculty transitions. Um, and so I deciding project, as long as it kind of fell into the umbrella of student success and transition um, is kind of how I, how I chose my research. And um, some things have been very deliberate and, you know, I want to research this. I want to focus on this. Um, and other things just have come, you know, you're talking with someone at a conference and they're like, Hey, this would be cool. Let's jam on this some more. And next thing you know, you're writing an IRB <laughs> three years later, publishing an article, you know, so it's, some of it is more organic and it just happens. Um, and other things are like, okay, I have an agenda and I'm going to, I'm going to stay focused on it. Um, but anything that kind of falls within that umbrella is, is what I try to say yes to. Um, and specifically in the last seven years, I worked exclusively with graduate students only. Mm -hmm. um, so before that undergraduate students only. And um, so I'm now really focusing my research and, and, and my work on graduate students and graduate student transitions and how we prepare and support graduate students. Um, you know, again, this is the world I'm living in. So it's what I wanna, what I wanna research. So I've kind of, um, again, added another vein or line under my umbrella of research to say, okay, how do we include graduate students in this conversation? Awesome. Yeah, and it is, I think you did a nice job of saying, this is where I started and this is what it's grown into. So, um, and the trajectory of it. So you've talked about your teaching, you've talked about your research, what about, all the other stuff because you know people think that's it really they think teaching and then oh yeah you do some research but what about service what are some of the other ways that you're involved in the profession in organizations in service to your institution whatever you want to talk about yeah i think it's funny you know as uh most of us teaching higher education we've been in higher education, whether it's student affairs or uh, some sort of service unit within an institution. Um, so we get this idea of service and we get the idea of university administration. And so because of that, um, I feel like that either I've volunteered or been voluntold or stepped up to a lot of opportunities um, specifically around university leadership because they're like, oh, you study university systems, you should be on that committee or do that or step up to this role. Um, so a couple of years ago in 2018, I served as the interim dean, interim associate dean of our graduate school. Um, and just something that, you know, just kind of happened organically. Um, but we were in between associate deans and they were like, you know, who's, who's interested in this? And of course I threw my name in the hat and ended up doing it. And um, serving in an administrative role, but within academic affairs, which was different than my previous administrative roles as a student affairs professional. Um, and of course I'm roped into lots of university things like graduate council. And um, this year I have the, the honor and privilege of serving on multiple um, tenure review committees at the departmental level and the college level. Um, and so that's been exciting. I'm also serving as our assistant department head right now. Um, so it, just another kind of administrative structure. And um, I'm, I'm also drawn to those because that's where my natural skill set is. 
um, and as a, as a previous student affairs professional. And so I'm drawn to roles like that. Um, outside of my institution, um, I'm pretty involved with NASPA. Um, I'm on the faculty council for NASPA and specifically I run an initiative called EFLA, Emerging Faculties Le Leadership Academy. Um, and this is for early career faculty members that have been a faculty for three years or less. Um, and it's basically a, a mentoring and professional development program. Um, so we, we accept about seven to nine folks per year um, across the country and they go through a, a monthly leadership um, training and initiative. Um, I had a really cool experience being a participant in that program um, when I was in my, I don't know, about third year um, as a faculty member. And it was so important to me that whenever they needed different leadership to step up, I volunteered. Um, so I've served as the kind of co-coordinator for two years, and now I'm the lead coordinator. Um, and it's my way of giving back to faculty. You know, many of us have made that transition from student affairs professional to faculty member. And um, if I can help support and mentor early career faculty members, even though I'm still feel early in my own career um, in that sense, um, I've just found a lot of meaning and hope in that in the same way that I study transitions and support for undergraduate students and then now graduate students. And I'm like, this falls within you know, my, my research umbrella and therefore my service umbrella is how do I help with that transition? How do I help people onboarding them to the profession? Um, so I do do some other other service things um, outside of the institution other than that, but EFLA is is probably where I spend most of my my time and heart um, running that that leadership academy, and um, I've really really loved it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, and you've touched on a number of things, but are there other things you're working on? And it could be for teaching or research projects or other service things. Anything else that you want to sort of celebrate or that you're excited about that you'd like to share more? Yes, sure. So um, because of my uh, focus on graduate students in the last seven years, um, I got involved in the NASPA knowledge community called Administrators for Graduate and Student Services. Um, and it's funny that as a faculty member, I, I am an administrator of graduate student services, but other than my, my time when I was served as the associate dean of the graduate school, I haven't spent a lot of time being in, in those spaces and those roles. Um, but I, I found that, that those are kind of my people at, you know, other than, other than faculty at conferences and things, working with um, other professionals who have found their student affairs path working with um, graduate and professional students. So through AGAPS, which is what that knowledge community is, um, there, there are two initiatives that kind of came about. Um, the first was an initiative to say, hey, how are we training future student affairs professionals to work with graduate students? As you know, so much of our focus is training them to work with undergraduate students and undergraduate student development. Um, and so some of the AGAPS folks um, created an initiative um, where they created like, I would call them grab and go curricular models, curricular modules. Um, for faculty like me and you to say, hey, I want to talk about graduate students, whether it be in a theory course, or I want to talk about graduate students um, when it comes to offering support or different services. And so they're basically these grab and go modules that practitioners who work with graduate professional students have created um, for faculty like us to implement into the classroom because we oftentimes, I say we, higher ed programs don't oftentimes have specific courses or tracks dedicated to that. And so just kind of expanding student affairs to say, hey, a lot of us end up working with graduate students, but we didn't learn about working with graduate students when we ourselves were graduate students. So how do we start doing that? So that was a really cool initiative that I got to jump on board with a couple of years ago. And then that kind of bled into the second project of, hey, there's, there's a need to kind of collect all of these best practices and cool things happening across the nation um, to support graduate and professional students through the life cycle. So from recruiting and admissions and onboarding and orientation all the way through supporting and advising um, to graduation. And there, it became very clear that there's a, a big lack of research um, and even more than research, 
um, hands-on practical ideas for student affairs professionals finding themselves working with graduate and professional students. Um, so we pitched um, to Rutledge um, to, to write a book about this. And that was about two years ago. They said yes. And it has taken much of my time and heart and blood, sweat and tears over the last couple of years. But as of August 1st, just a couple of months ago, we submitted the full manuscript to Rutledge. Um, and it's called A Practitioner's Guide to Supporting Graduate and Professional Students. So it's for student affairs professionals, for people who work in graduate schools or work with graduate students in any capacity. Hey, here's a guide to, to best practices. Um, the things that are available out there are really for, for people like us, like faculty members who are working with students through research and through writing theses and things like that, but not really a lot for, you know, student affairs professionals working with graduate students. So that book will be out in February of 2022, um, and I cannot be more excited. We've got um, over 50 contributors, um, and we just had this, uh, it's been a ton of work, but just this really glorious experience. Um, co-editing my, my first book and just working with amazing researchers and scholars and practitioners um, to produce this collection um, of, of best practices and things that we can do. I love that because we talk all the time about how our grad students are like in our programs, right? They're in an assistantship, they're here for academics, but sometimes they're really fulfilling professional roles. And um, it's like uh, all of the um, opportunities with not necessarily all of the advantages. And, um, and it is a population that you're right. It's, we might talk a little bit about recruiting graduate students, but once you've got them, you know, that support is so important. So that's awesome. That is like, I'm already thinking about how could we use this during our recruitment time or um, in partnership with field experience site supervisors or assistantship, assistantship supervisors. So that's wonderful. That's oh, wonderful. Congratulations. That's huge. I'm really excited and it's yeah, it's, it's been a passion project and, and it's finally here. You know, when you work on something for so long and you're in the depths of it for so long and all of a sudden you're at the end and you're like, oh my gosh, and they just sent front matter book cover info this week. And I'm like, oh, there's really going to be a book in just a few months. I'm so excited. It's not real until there's a cover. That right, is real. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, that is wonderful. Um, so thinking about your own shift from being a practitioner to being a faculty member, what are some things that have surprised you about being in this role? Good, bad, or other? Yeah, I, I was really surprised, um, specifically at the beginning, how independent um, being a faculty member is. You know, as student affairs professionals, even if we <clears throat> are operating, you know, as, as small offices or you know, vast areas across campus, we're usually working with a team of folks and we're, we're on a staff and we, you know, are, are with other people or even if it's just the whole division of student affairs, if you're at a smaller school. Um, and when I became a faculty member, I was like, oh, I'm all alone. And yes, we've got other faculty and we're all in this together kind of thing. But I mean, the work itself is really independent. Um, I prepare my classes and I teach and I grade all on my own. I, yes, will collaborate with research with people, maybe from different institutions. Um, but, you know, sitting and writing an article, even if we're writing it together, it's I'm spending time alone behind my computer writing. And it's just really independent work. Um, and that was so different for me from student affairs work. Um, and so that was initially something about my transition that I was like, okay, all of this is independent. With that, um, there's a lot of flexibility. And I think for me, that's been a huge perk of this job is it's very independent and it's completely have to have a lot of self-motivation and complete autonomy around your own time management. There's no one telling you when to show up and, you know, no one knows if I'm working from home or the office or, you know, and, and so there's a lot of that kind of individual accountability there. Um, but with that is a lot of freedom. And um, to be honest, 
I, I think that that's how I've been able to be um, the kind of mom that I want to be to my kids. And it's because I, you know, get to pick my kids up from school and I might get back on email or get back on the horn, you know, after they're in bed. Um, but I get to manage my own day and my hours and my time um, differently than I did when I was a student affairs professional working nine to five and working evening events. Um, I, I feel like I have a lot more autonomy over my own life. But with that is a lot more responsibility um, to get stuff done. So I think that that, that was the biggest transition for me um, was, was working so independently, um, but also the, the, the beauty of being able to kind of manage your own time and your own schedule. It's, uh, it, it was that, that has been a good part of it for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so, and, and again, this sort of feeds off of what you were just talking about, knowing <clears throat> what some of the trade-offs are. If you were going to give advice to someone either currently working in student affairs or even um, a graduate student who's thinking, you know, long term, do I want to stay a practitioner? Do I want to um, maybe become a faculty member? What suggestions or advice would you give to them as they're they're thinking about their options moving forward? That's such an important question, and I really appreciate you asking that. Um, something that in higher eds, and maybe this is all fields, but from my own lived experience, um, higher ed, we socialize faculty or future faculty, um, we socialize students to believe that there's only one type of faculty member. Um, and that's a research one, um, high scholarly output faculty member. And I think that that's in the early days why why I thought that I wasn't equipped to be a professor or why I didn't maybe want to have research as part of my job description. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we, we've just, we, we train people to believe that if, if you want to be a faculty member, you need to work at a large research institution and you need to produce a ton of scholarship. Um, and, and if you don't find yourself at an institution like that, then your goal should be to get in it, to, to move to an institution like that. Um, and I think that that is a huge myth of this field. Um, yes, research one scholars like yourself are so important. We need research institutions. Um, but I really had to grapple with my own faculty identity around what kind of faculty member do I want to be and what type of institutional fit works for the type of faculty member that I want to be. So right now I'm at a regional comprehensive institution. And yes, publishing and research is a part of my job, but it's one third of my job, um, not 80%, you know, or, or a lot. And I, I don't have as many scholarly output requirements as someone at a research one, but that's why I'm drawn to the institution type that I'm at right now. And I always tell people like, I have found my home at a regional comprehensive and it's because teaching is so valued. And so I spend a lot of time teaching. I spend a ton of time working one-on-one -on -one with students and a ton of time mentoring students and preparing them for, for life after graduate school. Um, but that's where my passion and my heart is. And I think for a long time, I felt like I was supposed to be trying to be at, a, at an R1 or trying to be a certain type of faculty member or try to be a certain type of scholar and, um, and to produce a certain type of research. And it's taken me, you know, many years to say, no, I, I love that I'm a teaching professor. I love being in the classroom. I love working with students. Um, and that's where I want to spend the majority of my time. Yes, I absolutely value scholarship and research and I do that. And you've heard about my research and my projects, but that is just one piece of the puzzle. It's not the biggest piece of the puzzle. And um, so I would, the, the advice that I would give to people is, hey, there are lots of different types of faculty members because there are lots of different types of institutions. So find an institution that matches the kind of faculty member that you want to be. And knowing that there's, um, there's so many different options and that there's not just one way to be a professor or one institutional type that we're all um, aiming to work for. You know, I've, I've had this conversation before and I agree completely. For some reason today, the way that you're talking about it, we talk about this as practitioners. 
you know, if you're working at a small private, this is what your experience will be versus a large public or a religiously affiliated institution or a community college. Um, But that's not embedded in doctoral programs in the same way. You're right. The message is here's where you, you should want to be, you know, or this is of course where you do want to be. Um, And absolutely it's, it's very similar in that. How do you want to spend your time? consider that as you're making the decision of where you want to go. So, um, but I never, I never thought about it in that way before. So I appreciate that. Um, what haven't I asked you that you want to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, something that, that maybe is, is more to a smaller audience or population, but something that I've had to navigate, um, is a dual higher ed career. And um, there are pluses and minuses to this. You know, I, I have a partner who is um, in higher ed and who is an administrator and has hopes and dreams of, you know, going up the administrative path further. Um, and then someone like myself who is navigating tenure and in, in the faculty side and, and then administrative roles that have come along with that. Um, so it's not that I have any particular advice or something fantastic to say, but just for people that are navigating that, you know, it's a lot. Yes, I'm I'm married to someone who speaks the language and we find ourselves at common events a lot. And it's it's definitely cool in that sense, um, but also trying to navigate both of our careers um, and to get where we want to go while also supporting one another um, when neither of us are are really that flexible. And, um, it's, it's been a, it's been a challenge to support one another. And so a method that we've used is, is turn-taking. Um, we, we moved to North Carolina for his job at, at WCU and it worked out that a couple of years later, I, I got this job. Um, but then our, our turn-taking was, okay, we'll, we'll commit to staying here until I get tenure and maybe beyond, but, you know, we'll see. And then after that, you know, it's his turn and, how do we navigate that? And that's just been a really sticky part of, of not only navigating my own career, but I'm also helping someone that I love navigate their career in the, in the exact same industry, but in, in a different way, um, administration versus faculty. And um, so again, not, nothing really to say there other than saying this is a thing and I've had to navigate this. I'm in the depths of still navigating it. Um, so for other people that might find themselves in the, in the same boat, you know, there, there are multiple of us out there who are trying to figure it out as well and um, happy to chat with anybody who's who's navigating that. That's great because again you know I'm thinking of some of the students in our second year cohort who are doing a search with a partner sometimes that gets um, spun only as a positive you know oh it's so good that you have somebody that you're searching with and it's like yes and there are challenges that come along with that. And um, I have to imagine your communications background probably helps as the two of you are, are talking and planning and strategizing about whether it's turn-taking or opportunities or even probably some of the day-to-day negotiations that you have to do. So yeah. I appreciate that. Well, I just, I, I'm so grateful that you were able to take some time and just so our listeners know, this is seriously like the fifth reschedule. So I'm grateful that you didn't give up on this conversation because um, it really, it's been wonderful. And I appreciate your time and your perspective. And um, your students are really lucky to have you as a resource and a, mm-hmm. a guide. And I'm sure you, you take things away from them as well. So um it's a great job that we have. So Um, I I was hoping that you would share one more thing before we go. And just given, you know, I suppose we could have recorded this at any point in the last, you know, five, six, seven years and still said, times are tough. But seriously, times are tough right now. So Mm -hmm. as you're navigating everything, what are some things that are giving you hope? Yeah, there's, man, there's so much heaviness in the world. And um, 
I've actually spent a lot of time in the last year um, navigating how to to stay hopeful because sometimes you know you, you get lost in the depths. Um, I know that I do. Um, <clears throat> I find I find hope in in grad students. I there's something powerful about working with an incredible group of students that you know are going to go on to change lives. Um, to kind of hope and and sometimes when I'm in the depths of despair, looking at the future of our our nation. Um, it's, it's the students that are so passionate in my classrooms and who care so deeply um, that give me hope. I'm like, okay, we're, we're going to be in good hands. You know, people like this are going out into the world and making a difference. It's going to make the world a better place. Um, and then kind of on a personal level, I've just really had to focus on um, specifically this summer. I, I made it very intentional um, doing things that bring me joy. Um, I spent the last you know, academic year, as we all have just in, in the depths um, and kind of in a hard place um, personally and professionally um, and, you know, all things considered. Um, and in the summer, I made a commitment that I was going to do things that, that brought me joy. Um, and I still have to do some things that don't bring me joy just because we, we have to be functioning adults. Um, but just what, what can I do to, to make sure that, you know, myself and my children are taken care of and, and my kids give me hope too, right? Like they, God, it's, it's amazing for those of you listening, go talk to a little kid, go find yourself an eight-year-old. Um, you know, they'll, they'll give you hope. It's just amazing how, um, how refreshing spending time with, with an, you know, an open, innocent mind can really, can really change your perspective. Um, so, so also spending time with my kids, but that gives me a lot of hope. Wonderful. Well, thank you one more time, um, Dr. April Perry. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, and uh, you've just given us a lot to think about, you know, and, and things to celebrate, not just sort of, um, I don't know, dread or trudge through or whatever. So um, I, once again, thank you for your time, your willingness to keep trying to give your time to this interview. So, well, thank you. This has been so fun and, and I love it. Excellent. So today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA and we thank them for their support. Additionally, this show would not be possible without my producer, Jen Lowe at the University of South Florida. Thank you, as always, for your support and collaboration, Jen. As we close, I'd like to leave you with a quote. And today's quote is, act as if what you do makes a difference, because it does, by William James. My name is Michelle Botcher. It has been a pleasure to host this episode. And have a beautiful day. <laughs>